All right, so let's uh, move sideways. You talked about purchasing a practice, and most physicians will not purchase a practice, so it's a foreign concept to them. There are people that will uh, purchase a cash-only practice, you know, for example, ophthalmology uh, or plastic surgery, but for the vast majority of physicians, in particular the vast majority of surgeons, they will they have no idea what that means. But t- tell me what that what that experience was like. I mean, interestingly enough, you didn't purchase it from a surgeon, you purchased it from an estate. So in a sense, you were, pur- I mean, when you do that, you're purchasing mostly the list of patients. And presumably these are individuals that would ideally like to uh, have a relationship with um, a known entity and, and carry on as before and not have to go out searching for a new individual. Just t- tell me what that looks like when you made the decision and what that entails operationally. Yeah, it was not the ideal practice purchase um, in the sense that um, it didn't have a doctor to transition the practice. Um, the team did agree to stay with me. So that was one bonus that I had was they were very well respected. It, it was actually a very well-known practice in Philadelphia. The dentist who had committed suicide was very um, was a marketing, traditional marketer. So he was in Philadelphia mm-hmm. Magazine a lot. I knew of him because of that. I didn't know him personally. Um, but I, the team, after meeting me, decided to stay with the practice. Obviously, um, I told you, I got to the building and redid everything. So the equipment was not worth that much to me. Um, it was basically the the team who was staying and then the the patients who were there. And it was a really good practice. I mean, again, fee for service, no insurances. Um, but it was definitely a risky um, endeavor on my part. In, in fact, when um, I there's a forum, which is called Dental Town, which is a website um, that Dentists go on to ask questions. I had posed the question at the time to, um, because Facebook didn't exist back then, um, and um, I had posed the question to the other dentist, what would you do? And so many people, and you still can see the, the the initial thread I started way, way back in 2007, you know, everybody was saying, avoid it like the plague. You don't want to get involved with this. And I took a practice that was making about $1.2 million um, collection-wise. And in, in three years, I, I doubled it to 2.5, working three and a half days a week. But I put a lot of systems in place to make that happen. And I became a, a really good leader. Um, and I really worked on me as a person through a lot of coaching and consulting um, to become or take my practice to the next level. Um, but it was definitely a, not a, not a you know, not an impulsive purchase. Um, I really had to think long and hard about buying that type of practice. And is that the type of purchase that is financed through a bank or I mean, is a, do you pay them up front? Do you pay them over time? What are the mechanics of that? No, the, the nice thing about buying a dental practice is um, you get full 100% financing. So I basically put up no funds. I had to give them a personal guarantee, but there was no no down payment. It's not like buying a house, you need 20% down. It's fully 100% financed and you choose to pay it off in seven to 10 years or 10 years. I chose seven years to get it done faster, mm-hmm. uh, which made my nut, my monthly nut, much more money. Mm-hmm. But I, but I wanted to get rid of it very quickly, so I paid my debt off in seven years. And the employees did stick around. At least the majority, if not all of them, stayed with you, correct? All of the employees stayed out with me originally. Um, about right. six months after I bought, one employee left, and then I fired the office manager about a year later. I found her. Um, prescribing herself uh, Vicodin with my prescription pad. And, wow. Uh, yep. And I caught that through just a uh, just a kind of a audit I did. And I was looking at prescriptions and I said, why does she have so many prescriptions for herself? 
and I did some further investigating and she was calling them in on my behalf um, to her pharmacy and getting the prescriptions. I immediately fired her. And that was a big turning point for me because I really became the boss at that point. I, I hate to say it, but I felt the girls had me by the nuts when I bought the practice. If they weren't, if they didn't stay, the practice was not going to survive with just me and no team there. So I needed them to say that was kind of the requirement to buy in the practice. So I had to give them things that, you know, they had, they had me, um, they were the, the boss, basically. I was working for them, it felt like. Once she left, I then took over the practice. And that's when my practice really shot up because I took over some of the duties that I wanted to and didn't, didn't even, I never had an office manager ever again. I was the office manager and I had someone at the front working for me. And that's an incredible violation of trust to steal your Vicodin pass. I mean, look, I understand why it was a crime of opportunity. It was, it was somebody who apparently felt like they needed it and it was available. Um, but you can well imagine how that could turn into a, a complete annihilation for a practice, meaning that if you never found out about it, you didn't take preemptive proactive action, uh, you can well imagine how the DEA would, uh, or even local police would show up at your doorstep one day and, and shut you down for the most part. You'd be playing defense, not offense here. 100% so. I agree. So that was a big turning point in my career as well because I was able to take over the practice. I took over the, the treatment planning and the financial part of the business. So I handled tre uh, treatment and, and, and financials. And uh, um, I was really good at sales. And that's kind of how I got into it. Now I teach workshops on, on case acceptance and third-party financing. So that was a big, big change because of what happened in the office. You had talked about your practice not taking um, dental insurance, and there are a number of medical practices, cash pay practices that don't take insurance. Dental insurance is kind of a weird beast because it's, I wouldn't even call it, you know, the traditional insurance. So with traditional health insurance, which I'm sure you and I both have, I mean, it, it pays an unlimited amount of money for horrific things that happen. So if we end up in the intensive care unit requiring a, a organ transplant, we hopefully assume they will pay the bills, you know, up to $4 million. But with dental insurance, it's almost like here's a bucket of money with a low cap and we'll kind of tell you what the rules are, what you can and can I get. And actually, I don't even have dental insurance. And in fact, I'm not even sure I've ever had dental insurance. Um, but why don't you start by describing, you know, your view or your interpretation of what dental insurance is and, and why so many dentists do accept it and why many do not accept it? So I, the best example I can describe what dental insurance is, especially versus medical insurance, is if you are in a car accident and you lose your arm, mm -hmm. your arm gets cut off and your fingers get cut off. With, de with medical insurance, everything gets put back together again at once and you have a small copay, okay? Mm -hmm. Dental insurance literally is you get your arm chopped off. The first year they attach your arm. The second year they attach your hand. The third and fourth year, they attach the fingers, okay? Mm. Dental insurance is like a coupon because in the last 50 years, the benefit has only risen from maybe $1,000 to maximum of $2,000 in treatment. Right. Repeat that again. So the typical benefit over the past decade has risen from 1000 a year to $2,000 a year, correct? Actually, most plans are literally somewhere between 1000 and 2000 maybe 1500 so there's been no increase in, in in benefits through the insurance companies but the cost of dental procedures has risen dramatically over the years so it is like a coupon so someone comes in and they need eight thousand dollars in fillings how much do they owe everything minus a thousand dollars okay so it, they 
the the insurance is basically I don't even call it it's a benefit it's a coupon they can apply to their treatment to lower the cost of them. There's no comprehensive plan that covers it. Now look, the, the UPS drivers happen to have a five thousand dollar maximum. Um, the the um, uh, the firefighters of Philadelphia had a plan that was more expensive more expensive than what it covered. But we're talking about the average person somewhere between a thousand to two thousand dollars. Some of them have a waiting periods. So when you get the plan, you have to wait a year to get certain procedures done. It is a very gimmicky thing. I I don't understand why people get you know pay for dental insurance on the road. I think it's the biggest waste. Um, but it, there's a very big difference between medical and dental insurance. Do you think most patients are aware of the cap on dental insurance when they purchase it and it comes in and that turns into or morphs into an un, an ugly discussion when they get educated as to what they what they do and do not have? One of the things I always said is that we should we as a, a dental community should go out there and educate patients on what dental insurance really is, because most people have no clue. Like literally, just as an example, and this is to a minor extent, but let's say you have a $1,000 maximum and you get a crown and a bunch of fillings and you max out that $1,000. They still think they get a free cleaning twice a year. If you don't have any money left over, you don't get a free cleaning. <laughs> it's, it's, it's out of that $1,000 maximum, 95% of the plans. So people say, well, I was supposed to get another free cleaning. Not that if you have no money left, there's nothing to give you out of that thousand dollar fund that was there for you. Um, so it's a big mis big misconception. You know, they think they have coverage. They only have somewhere between, you know, like if you get a crown, it's covered at 50%. That means the insurance pays 50% and the patient pays 50%. And there's a deductible. You know, the only thing really covered 100% is, is a cleaning, um, that which is, again, and it's also the other interesting thing is, you know, they talk about fees. So mm -hmm. being out of network allowed me to set my own fees for procedures. The insurance company goes by what's called UCR, usual and customary rates. And mm -hmm. if most of my fees were within the UCR, but if they weren't, the patient would only get 100% of the UCR, not my fees. So that was very difficult to discuss with patients, explaining to them, you know, what their insurance covered, what it didn't. If they had a fee schedule, Forget about UCR. They just paid on the fee schedule, so it could be they you paid couldn't Could you balance bill them for uh, for Always. that procedure or not? Oh, being out of network, you could 100%. No, but if you were still in network, you would be beholden to that fee schedule, correct? No, nope, you cannot. And that's one of the reasons why I chose not to go in network. I didn't want someone setting my fees, but I also didn't want someone as an insurance company telling me what I can and could not do on a patient. You know, it's interesting. We have one client who was uh, performing, I think. He, he performed a lot of a particular type of procedure to the point that um, the insurance company was so irritated with him that they sent a complaint to him to the state dental board. And it seems as if everything that he did was entirely justified and the rationale for filing the complaint. Remember, this is not a patient filing a complaint. Every patient was delighted with their outcome, thoroughly delighted with their outcome. Not a single patient filed a complaint. And the outcomes were excellent. But apparently, from his perspective, from the uh, from the dentist's perspective, he believes the carrier didn't like writing the checks, and so somehow they filed a complaint. And he had to play defense, and ultimately prevailed. But it just seems like um, dirty pool, where a carrier will turn in someone with because of an issue that is not patient-centric, not patient-driven. This is simply they just do not like writing the checks. 
Yeah, I, I've actually seen instances where insurance companies have gone after um, dentists. Whether so, for instance, when someone gets a crown done, um, usually underneath the crown there's a buildup done to support the crown. It's called a right. crown and buildup. Um, if you do more buildups than the national average, you'll get a letter from the insurance company saying that well, they have concerns because you're doing more than your the typical average dentist does. So, um, and I've heard that more and more. Um, but but know, hang tight for a second. That that means that they don't quite understand what the word average means. The average mean mean the the better the better um, concession should be that you're within the standard devi- or two standard deviations, meaning that you're within the normal curve. Because if you're saying you do more than an average, then ultimately you're mo- you're going to keep moving. So let's say that you um, that everybody gets limited to the average. You're going to start moving that curve to the left. Yep, I agree. Mm-hmm. I agree, and that's why you know. Delta Dental has been known for it, and Delta Dental is, is dropping reimbursements. This, they're dropping reimbursements to dentists. They're not increasing the reimbursement, even though the fees have gone up and up and up. So there's been a big, big cry in the industry to start dropping dental insurances. But unfortunately, unless we band together as a group, it isn't going to make any difference. And, and those that stay with the insurance will get those patients. Those that are out of the network won't get the patients anymore. So it's a very big, there's a big push for people to start dropping these dental insurances. So why do patient, uh, why do dentists hang on to insurance if the benefit is so limited? Is it just because the expectation is that that's what it takes to have enough patients to fill a practice? I think it's they're scared. Um, I think they're scared to lose patients for dropping an insurance. Um, right. I my my philosophy is the average insurance write-off is going to be somewhere between 20 and 30 percent, if not more, of your fees. Right. Um, if you're taking 20 or 30 percent hit drop the insurance, you'll lose 20% of your patients, let's say. But if you lose 20% of your patients, you'll work less and you'll make the same amount of money. The dentists don't see it that way. They risk, they don't want to risk um, the mm-hmm. kind of what happens when you potentially have patients and, and seats to fill. Because the big joke is if you don't have someone in your chair, if you're a dentist, you're unemployed. <laughs> your <laughs> team's getting paid, but you're unemployed if there's no mm-hmm. patients in the chair. And I think that's a scary thing for a lot of people out there to be able to do. I was never in insurance. I don't understand the insurance model. It's purely a a uh, a, quanti- a quantity game. You're treating patients, more patients to be able to make the same amount of money. I never understood that model. I've always been a, a quality rather than quantity. I want to circle back uh, to marketing. Um and because you spent a lot of time chatting about that, and it seems like dentists as well as all physicians uh, need to understand their their target market. Who is their market? Because both Walmart and Target make a lot of money, but their marketing strategies are different because their clients are different, um, meaning that you can probably do well as a dentist in Beverly Hills. You can probably do well as a dentist in Peoria, but I would imagine that the marketing strategies and the type of care that gets delivered. When I say the type of care, I mean the experience that the individual has needs to be matched to whatever the expectations are. Why don't you dwell on that for just a bit? Yeah, I think it's important that you know your target audience, like you said. Um, you know, if you are a fee-for-service practice, you're going to be targeting different types of patients. Rather than just doing drilling and filling, um, you want to do other procedures like Invisalign, like cosmetic dentistry, like sleep dentistry, like implant dentistry. There's a whole marketing out there that you can do to attract those specific type of patients to your practice. But you have to know the type of patients that you want to attract. And a lot of dentists don't know that. They don't have an identity. 
Are, are those those types of additional procedures that you talked about? Does that require additional background training experience? Is that something you pick up in dental school, or how do how do people learn this? No, they take they take certification classes. So I mean, there are mm -hmm. there are hands-on implant uh, classes um, that you take to learn how to place implants. For Invisalign, you take a you know a, a weekend course to be certified to be able to do it. It's basically continuing education. When you leave dental school, they only teach you the very basics and right. some of it, which is right, some of it, which is wrong. So I think when you go out in the real world, you have to learn what you're good at and what you, you're not good at. And to be honest with you, I did not get uh, uh, the best training, even though I love Tufts. Turns out I, I didn't learn orthodontics. I didn't learn oral surgery. Um, I was, a, was your typical general dentist, but I enjoyed doing cosmetics and, and Invisalign and restoring implants. And that was the focus of my practice. After about six years in, I dropped all those other procedures. I didn't do them anymore. I referred them all out to the specialists because as a dentist, I'm held to the the uh, qualifications of a specialist and I can never do the work they could. So I just made a decision early in my career that I would stop doing these procedures and yeah, refer them out. I think it makes a great deal of sense just to stay in your proper lane. I mean, look, we should all try to aspire to do better and to learn more. I mean, there's continuing education. It's lifelong learning. But I, where I see people get into trouble from a medical legal perspective, and I guess dental legal perspective, is where they stretch a little bit too much, assuming that they will not run into a problem. And um, if you don't have the full background training and experience and you run into a problem, it's hard to justify. And I think it's possible to lose everything that you have built very quickly by straying too far from your core competence. I do some work for the State Board of Dentistry, and I look at cases for malpractice for the state, and there are many times, knock on wood, you know, I've seen, I've, I've looked at about 60 cases, but there's only been some really malpractice in a few of them, and the majority of time, it's it's the work that they did as a general dentist that um, were not good, and they are held to the, le the specialist level, and if you can't do it as good or better than the specialist, don't do it at all. You know, um, what we sometimes... I, so here's a, a broad question. Do dentists view themselves as colleagues or competitors or both? And there may not be a perfect answer. The general answer may be it depends. It depends who you ask. But, I mean, what, what's your thought? Now, I mean, you've consulted with so many different practices. So um, what do you think the consensus is or the perception? I, I speak to so many dentists. I've, as I said, I've, I've consulted with so many dentists. I've had interactions with so many dentists. And I think it you'd find a mix in the industry. I think that's a really good question. And I think I want to put it in my Facebook group, Raving Patients. Right when we're done with this, I'm going to pose that question because I'm really curious. I would say the majority of dentists, majority of dentists look at themselves as colleagues. There's a select few of them that are definitely looked at as competitors and you don't want them to do well. Um, I don't want to say anything bad about a DSO, a dental service organization, but they don't provide the best care to the patients. It's a business. They're owned by private equity. They're, they're there to make money um, right. versus a, a single location dental practice looking out for the best interests of the patients. So I think you find a mix. I think the majority of dentists would tell you, though, that they look at other dentists as colleagues. So here's one way I get a subtle answer to the question. It's not an exact answer. So if if um, if you're a dentist, I guess a hypothetical dentist, and a patient comes in and they've been treated elsewhere, and it looks like there's a complication. I mean, it may or may not be, but you definitely don't have all the details. That I know. You've, you just have the patient side of the story. You may or may not have some films, but there's definitely a gap. So the question is, do you pick up the phone and call the initial dentist? 
or do you just um, carry on um, filling in the gaps, uh, your, your knowledge vacuum on your own, and then potentially raising an eyebrow to the patient saying, I can't believe, you know, the implication being, I can't believe the other dentist did X, Y, and Z. So again, another tricky situation. I will tell you that I think the far majority of dentists would not call the other dentist, okay? But they also would not throw the other dentist under the bus. They would work their way around um, because we don't have all the information. We only have the side of the story and maybe some films, like you said. Um, I would tell you that in my Facebook group, especially, I've seen people post and they call out and they want to call out other dentists and they get they get a bashing from the audience saying, don't ever do that. But I, I know that some would um, in the industry, but the far majority, in my opinion, would not throw the other dentist under the bus and they would find a way to, to um, ease the patient through whatever problem they're having. It's probably good, or I would call that almost the best practice. I mean, obviously, if someone's a danger to the public, that's a different story. So I'm, I'm not including, you know, the, you know, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde uh, in this, uh, in, in this bucket right now. But typically, you don't have all the facts. That's number one. And then number two is that sooner or later, you will be that guy. Sooner or later, you will be in the crosshairs where one of your patients never came back. And we don't know why they didn't come back, but they just never came back and they're in someone else's chair. And you hope that the golden rule will, will apply. Namely, if that's kind of your general mantra, you, you kind of hope that you'll be a beneficiary of, of that wisdom, you know, at some point down the road. Yeah, I'm very fortunate in 23 years of dentistry, which is how long I practiced for, um, I never had a case go to the board. Um, did I have some failures? Of course, but everybody had some failures. Um, you know, I, I'm very fortunate that, um, you know, uh, the reviews that I got written about me and I had about 2000 positive reviews and about, I think 92 negatives was the final number I finished with. So, wow, 91, 92 negatives is a lot, but the majority of them were about my personality. I'm a New Yorker living in Philadelphia. Uh, <laughs> I have a mouth on me. Um, you know, I wanted it to be paid. You're not most from Dixie? I, I would have confused the speed of your, um, or the cadence of your talk as being below the Mason-Dixie line. Yeah, definitely not. Actually, I went to college at Tulane in New Orleans, and they said they couldn't understand me down there. I used <laughs> to speak a lot faster when I was younger, a lot faster. And, and you slowed uh, it down, huh, Since? I slowed, And I still speak fast, but I'm, I slowed it down considerably from when I was younger. And um, But it was really interesting. Um, to look back and the most of the reviews were about the fact that I wanted people's money because I was a fee-for-service practice. They thought I charged a lot of money again because I was a fee-for-service practice, but it wasn't about the quality of the dentistry. I mean, and the only way they would find out about the quality of the dentistry was going to another dentist to say, who did this work on you? We did a really crappy job. Otherwise, patients don't know whether you do bad work or not on them. Um, what causes patients to complain online? I mean, the, the ratio that you're talking about is excellent. And Bill Gates once said he learned the most from the complaints that he received, you know. So actually, he it's not like he encouraged it, but he, he took them to heart and thought that he could learn quite a bit. It's a lot easier to get, you know, to manage constructive criticism than to just, you know, to get a pat on the back all the time. So what, what causes patients to complain online broadly since, since you've got your finger to the pulse here? The patient doesn't feel listened to. Um, repeat that. They, I want you to repeat that because that's such an important point. The patient doesn't feel listened to. They feel like they're being ignored. They feel like the practice doesn't care or the, per, the provider doesn't care. Um, most of those reviews happen because of that um, or just like trying to sweep something under the rug and not dealing with it. Mm -hmm. um, 
if you if they feel listened so even if you get a bad review and you respond appropriately or even better reach out to the patient to fix the problem most of the time that review is going to come down right i mean that's been because, our experience where yeah. where they feel listened to I and mean, i think maya angela once said that the someone will not care what you know until they know that you care yep. and so the bar is low and me that means actually keeping your mouth shut and listening to what they're saying. And it's very difficult to do in healthcare. We generally interrupt, uh, you know, with under 10 seconds. Yeah, I, I hired a consultant very early in my career. Her, her name was Lorraine Guth, and she had a company called Motivations by Mouth. It does, she doesn't do it anymore. But I was looking back at, at old information as I was cleaning out my office, and um, one of the things I, I, she told me was that after listening to me speak to patients, I wasn't a listener. I didn't listen to them. Mm -hmm. And I took that to heart because I thought I was the world's greatest listener. And I actually learned to listen better because I took listening classes. I took, a, I was coached to be listening. And it was, I learned something called um, active listening is the, is what I learned. And mm -hmm. I teach that now because I think it's a really important part to really grow who you are and yourself. And now I joke around. Now I'm an amazing listener. Everybody will tell you that. They know I'm listening but I'm a selective listener to my wife. So I, I tune out my wife every so often, um, but I am a great listener with everybody else. You can and still work on that. Of course I can, of course I can. <laughs> um, but the point was, is that I had to learn. I was, I had to be willing and able to accept the, the coaching that said that you suck at listening, you need to get better in order to be successful. I think that's one of the biggest things that we do not do as, as medical practitioners and dental practitioners. You know, I've got a colleague of mine that I respect quite a bit, and he's very focused on empathy. And he also believes that empathy can be trained, listening can be trained, and it's counterintuitive. I would I would think you're either born with it or you're not, but it turns out that I think with in both of those domains, they, they can both be trained. 100%. Listen, Len, I want to be respectful for your time because we're pushing up at the end of the hour. I just have a couple of questions, then we'll let you go. Actually, I have one other question because I, I want to go ahead and rub it in for the uh, the physicians who are listening. Um, what's the average cost for professional liability coverage for the typical dentist out there? It was funny. I was going to mention to be gentle, okay? Be very yeah, gentle. I, I was going to I was going to mention that the the at some point during our conversation. So when I was a full time practitioner. My the highest my malpractice insurance ever was was thirty three hundred dollars annually. Thirty three hundred dollars. Yeah. You know that a neurosurgeon in the Bronx may pay a quarter of a million dollars. I'm sure. I I, I actually when my son was born, when my son's 15 years old, I was talking to the OBGYN who delivered my son, and he mentioned that for the first six months of the year, the money that he delivers goes to the pay his malpractice insurance. I thought it was insane. Um, now, so I've been part-time dentistry for since 2017. I've only worked like 14 hours a week. Mm -hmm. And last year I paid $2,100. Amazing. And then going to extreme part-time, which for me, if I, I'm not practicing anymore, but I just was going to hold on to my light, uh, my license and now practice just in case, um, I'm not practicing down in Florida. I don't have a Florida license. So, uh, it would have been, um, $1,400 for the year to be extreme part-time. Extreme part time. All right, two final questions, um, then we're going to let you go. Would you advise your children to go into dentistry? Wow, that's a really tough question. Um, I, as I said, I love dentistry. Um, I think certain specialties afford um, a higher um, 
end result, more money in your pocket, less overhead. Um, so like orthodontics or oral surgery, if that's the way he wanted to go, I would certainly recommend it. Um, I think dentistry is a great career. You just got to find your space in the industry. Um, and so I think it depends on a lot of different factors. The, my biggest concern about medical and, and dental education is the cost. If you don't have someone who's able to pay for school, I think right. you're going to be a half a million dollars in debt and you have nothing at that point. And that's a big nut to crack. Um, my son is a brilliant kid. He, he's going to qualify for Bright Futures in Florida, which means he can go to a Florida State University for free. I've saved money for him. Um, and I told him if, if he, and he, he has a goal of going to Stanford, that's his goal. And I told him that if he gets Bright Futures, I would recommend he take the, the Florida school, whether it's USF, uh, um, University of Florida or FSU or something like that, take mm -hmm. the free education and use the money that I saved for him to pay for graduate school. Um, mm -hmm. But I, that's that's a big, big thing. I was very, very fortunate. Um, I haven't been given many things in my life, Jeff, um, but I was given an education by my parents. My mom and dad both paid for my college education as well as my dental school education, which meant I had no loans coming out of school which was a huge, huge, huge help to me. I didn't realize it though, till I was much older of how fortunate I was. Um, and, but I think if you're gonna go into school and you're gonna be a million dollars or half a million dollars in debt, I, I think you have to really examine that. That's a really hard thing to do. Yeah, this goes back to what I was, because I, I'm seasoned, I've been out for quite a while. Um, my college, my undergraduate was $400 a year or $300 a year for tuition. Room and board was extra. Medical school was 300 bucks a year. And obviously, it's gone up dramatically since then. And the amenities that were available back then were, were nil. I mean, basically, you got the education. There were no climbing gyms and swimming pools or, um, you know, the stadiums were left a lot to be desired. Um, but, yeah, I, I couldn't agree with you more on that. So final question, um, what advice would you give to your 20-year-old self, knowing everything you now know? That, you know, do what you love. Um, can, you know, become passionate about other things in life because you never know when you're going to want to change careers. And I'm really fortunate that I was like, I had no plans. I had no plans. I thought I would be a dentist for the remainder of my, my careers uh, of working career. Um, but if I had known then what I know now, I think I would have made some additional changes in the way I did things. Look, I'm a very big goal setter. We didn't talk about anything with goals. But I was fortunate at, at 49 years old to reach all of my life goals that I set when I was 10 years old. And I have a, an actual screenshot of what I did when I was 10. Um, I found it when I moved to Florida. And I have achieved every single one of those goals by the age of 49. And I'm very fortunate. Like I said, I'm a very hard worker. I haven't been given anything but, but an education for free. I've earned everything I've done. Um, but again, what I would tell them is, is make sure you find other things to do in life because you may not always want to stay with your main career. Len, how do people learn more about you and connect with you? So easy. I have a website, drlentau.com, D-R-L-E-N-T-A-U.com is my website. You can also check out my podcast if you want to hear more about um, growing one's practice. It's called the Raving Patients Podcast. Episodes drop Fridays at 5 a.m. Eastern time, but it's every Friday. I'm going into season six come January, so I've been doing it for a long time. Um, and I'll also give my cell phone number. If anybody has any questions, they can email me or call me. My cell phone number is all over the internet anyway. So um, my cell phone number is 215-292-2100. I'm happy to connect with anybody. I love, 
of doing these things. And my email is easy. It's len, L-E-N, at D-R-L-E-N-T-A-U.com. Easy peasy. Len, it's been an absolute joy uh, talking with you. I can't believe an hour has gone by, but I got to let you go and away we go. We'll talk again soon. And I'm sure we'll do this again soon. Thank you so much. I appreciate it, Jeff. And with that, we're at the end of our broadcast. Thanks for joining us. In closing, a few messages. If you're an existing member of medical or dental justice and you find yourself on the receiving end of a medical legal threat, please contact us at 1-877-MEDJUST. That's 1-877-MEDJUST or 633-5878. Our STAT hotline is a service offered to all current members. It's designed to get your urgent medical legal questions answered ASAP. Members can also access a plethora of exclusive medical legal resources by logging into their members-only page, which can be accessed by our website, medicaljustice.com. Now, we want to protect as many doctors as possible. If one of your colleagues is in trouble, please refer him. When a current member of Medical Justice refers a colleague and that colleague becomes a member, you both receive a month of free protection. To refer a colleague, write to us at infonews, that's I-N-Epperson Frank O News at medicaljustice.com. That's infonews at medicaljustice.com. Now, before we close, one last request. If you enjoyed this episode, please write a review on your preferred podcast provider and share our podcast with your colleagues. Reviews help maintain our podcast visibility which in turn helps us reach a broader audience. This helps us protect more doctors. Thank you for joining us this week. We hope you'll join us on the next episode of the Medical Liability Minute.